Welcome to another episode of Friendship Talks. Are you listening? My name is Reverend Dr. Paul Allen McAllister. I'm a member of Friendship Missionary Baptist Church, the social justice ministry of our church, and serving as, as today's host. Today, our special guest is Jonathan Eig, who is an American journalist and biographer. He is the author of six books, the most recent being King, A Life, a wonderful exposition of the life of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Reverend. It's good to see you again. It's wonderful to see you, and I know we've both had a very long and busy afternoon. I understand that you've been doing a great deal of interviews over the last several months. Yes, this book came out in May, and uh, I'm happy to say that a lot of people have been interested in hearing more about Dr. King, and I'm just honored to be sharing his story. You've written several books about heroic figures, outstanding figures, including Lou Gehrig, Al Capone, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, and also you've written about the birth of the pill. What has driven you to take on these enormously high-profile uh, figures and topics and even challenging subjects? I'm interested in telling the biggest and most important stories I can. I feel like that's my responsibility. I am a pretty good writer and a very good researcher, and I want to try to help us understand the world in which we're living. And to understand the world in which we're living, you have to understand the past. And I think understanding the past can help us better shape the future as well. So these are the biggest lives, the biggest issues that I think um, I tackle, and I, I'm trying to do what I can to, to help us better understand these, these important stories. Would you consider yourself, Jonathan, then to be a historian? Well, I'm telling stories out of history, so I guess that makes me a historian. I'm not trained as a historian. I'm trained as a journalist, and uh, I'm learning more about history as I go along. But I guess um, anybody who's interested in history and anybody who's writing about history can be called a historian, I guess, even if you don't have the degree necessarily. You've spent roughly, so I understand, six years doing research on the life of Dr. King. And I imagine you've spoken to a lot of individuals who may have uh, transitioned or passed on since you started this project. What are some of the most important uh, uh, lessons that you have learned or things you think you may have heard that are not included in the book but are part of what your thinking and thought process is. I tried to put the most important information in the book, of course, but as you know, I spent six years on this and I got to spend a lot of time with people who knew King and people like John Lewis and Harry Belafonte, Reverend James Lawson and Bernard Lafayette, and Jesse Jackson. And I don't think I can ever really convey what it was like to be in the room with, with some of these men and to just ask them what it was like to be around Dr. King, just to see the way they light up when they talk about him. They spoke so fondly of him. You know, we think of him as this great, important man, but they knew him as a friend. Um, some of the times, you know, they called him ML or Mike, even if they went back all the way to Auburn Avenue with him, as his friend uh, June Dobbs Butts uh, did a 
he still called him ML. And um, just, I think it was really valuable to see him as a human being in their eyes and help to remember that he was not always a monument and a national holiday. I think it's so important that we remember that our heroes were once people and that it was not a preordained conclusion that they would become, you know, world figures and icons. So why did you decide to write this particular book at this particular time? I felt like King over the last 40 years or so has been forgotten in a way, as we remember him more, as we tell the story more, as we celebrate him more, we turn him into kind of a two-dimensional figure, almost a stick figure, and we forget that he was flesh and blood, that he had doubts, that he had pains, that he had um, failures, and he failed a lot, and and that's okay. You know, if we want our heroes, if we want to have heroes, we can't expect perfection of them, because none of us are perfect. So I really wanted to write a book that would remind people that King was flesh and blood. That was my number one goal. And then, of course, there was a lot of new information to work with as well. There, was new, there were new FBI transcripts. Um, there were new archival documents from friends and from family members. Um, I found an autobiography that his father wrote that no, had never been published, that even the King family didn't know existed. So there was a lot of new information that helped us better understand him. So it was a great opportunity in that way, too. That is compelling. I wonder how many individuals can say their fathers or their mothers have written about their children. That is so interesting. So let me ask you this question as we get into uh, your book. And you begin with a particular passage of scripture that I remember reading even as a child and hearing many, many individuals speak on And it comes from the Old Testament book of Genesis or the Hebrew scriptures. And it's about a man named Joseph, whose father was Israel or Jacob. They said to one another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Let us slay him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. What do you think has become of the dreams of Martin Luther King Jr. and his generation? Well, I wouldn't say that they were killed when King was killed, but I would say that they suffered a setback. And I think for every moment of progress in this country when it comes to racial justice, we see a pushback, we see a backlash. And I think um, King was pointing us like a, like the dreamer Joseph toward a future um, that he thought was possible for us. And he was killed in part because people feared that dream. People feared uh, restructuring of the power in America. Um, and that meant that it took longer and we're still fighting to achieve the dream that he spoke of. But I think we've made progress. I just think that um, there's a lot more to be done. And I think that's partly why we we need to listen to King's words again. When we talk about the dream, we all too often fall back on his speech at the March on Washington on August 28, 1963. And we talk about his dream for brotherhood and his dream that we will one day be judged by the content of our character, not the color of us. And what we forget that in that same speech, he talked about police brutality and um, economic injustice and issues that are still 
hampering us today, still holding us back. So the dreamers' uh, warnings um, were were important and still unheeded. We still need to listen to those words of of, of what he of the, what his dream was really um, all about. Before we talk a little bit more about Dr. King, I want to talk about Jonathan Ike. Um, your background, what causes you to dream? Because this book, to me, is as much about the author as it is about the subject. Um, your curiosity, uh, your capacity to form words uh, into sentences that are compelling for individuals to read, um, it's about you. What are your dreams? Well, as a journalist, I try to resist the idea that it's about me. I like to think of myself as being invisible and, and staying in the background. But uh, you're right. It's impossible to ignore the storyteller's role in the story. And, you know, I'm someone who grew up in the same, um, just in the wake of King's assassination, really. And, you know, you could see the shattering of this um, movement in the 70s. You could see the fallout from his assassination. You could see the unfinished work. And I grew up with that. I grew up with uh, schools that had been integrated, but um, schools that were communities that were not fully integrated. And I think that um, I'm also um, a, a Jewish person by faith. And uh, there's a great call for justice in Judaism. Uh, much of the Torah is um, about try, trying to create God's image of, of justice on earth, that we are all made in God's image. And I take that seriously. I think we still have a lot of work to do. And I feel like I'm good at telling stories. I'm good at researching and writing. So I'd like to think that I can use those skills to try to tell stories that remind us of the work that still needs to be done. I I, I think it might be fun to just write books about popular culture, to write my, as my daughters would like to write a book about Taylor Swift. But uh, I'm more interested in in stories that really can help us move forward. Um, and that's, that's what I'm trying to do with what little, you know, skills, whatever, you know, I can bring to the, to the table. Good authors, good journalists know from where to draw information. And I imagine that since so many others have written about Dr. King's life, that you have read most, if not all of the biographies that have been written and commentaries what are some of the uh, key lessons or, or key sources that you've used in your writing and thinking about the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? Well, I was very fortunate to have so many great books that came before me that I learned from. Uh, books like the uh, works by David Levering Lewis and Taylor Branch and David Garrow, you know, all wrote about King very well long before I did. And most of those writers were very kind in sharing their archival materials and letting me have access to their research materials. But then there was new stuff that hadn't been tapped yet. I mentioned, you know, thousands of pages of new FBI documents. Um, King had a basically a personal archivist, um, a man named Lawrence Reddick, who traveled with him and kept track of everything King did, kept notes on every meeting. And his papers are now housed at the Schomburg Library in Harlem. And I was the first researcher to have access to those. Uh, there were new documents from the Montgomery bus boycott by uh, some Fisk University scholars who were documenting the boycott at the time it was taking place. So I had access to a lot of new material that really helps us understand what was going on 
um, with new insight. So that's partly why it took me six years to write the book. Uh, but that's a good problem to have. You know, I had so much new material to work through and to uh, and through and to try to understand. So let's get into the book. Um, I've read it and I will reread it again because it's such a compelling read and easy to digest. But for those who have not, uh, how do you begin in the book? I know you talk about Dr. King's background with his grandfather, uh, with his grandfather and his grandmother uh, on both sides of the family, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, share with those who are listening how you introduce us to this great historic figure. I begin on the night of December 5th, 1955, when King was asked to speak at the first community meeting in anticipation of the Montgomery bus boycott. As the, the people of Montgomery were deciding whether the time had come to fight, to fight back, whether the time had come to finally speak up to power and to refuse to ride those buses, to refuse to ride those segregated buses. And they were looking for someone to inspire them, someone who would convince the people that they really needed to stick together in in organizing this boycott. And they chose King, not because he was famous, not because he was well-respected, but because he was new in town. And they thought that um, he hadn't made too many enemies yet, that he might be able to inspire a broad coalition. And he stood up that night. He was scared. It was the biggest speech he'd ever given. He had a panic attack. Uh, he had 20 minutes to prepare and 10 minutes of that time he wasted because he couldn't think and couldn't even breathe. And then he got up and made what is one of the greatest speeches in American history. He says to the people gathered there at the Holt Street Baptist Church that if we're wrong in demanding justice, then the Constitution is wrong. If we're wrong in believing that we are equal citizens under the law, then the Bible is wrong and God Almighty is wrong. And he draws these conclusions that are almost impossible to argue with. It's so inspiring that suddenly a star is born and we find that he's not only gifted in his ability to reach the black community in Montgomery, but that he has a voice that really speaks to the entire nation, black and white, north and south. And that's what makes King so special. And it's, it discovers it really. We all discover it that night on December 5th. What would you say were some of the things that prepared him for that night? No one um, suddenly steps onto that type of stage and performs as well and as eloquently as he did. There was preparation involved, right? Oh, absolutely. And as you pointed out, his father and his grandfather were preachers. Um, he'd been practicing preaching since he was a little kid. Before he could read, he was doing uh, funeral services for, you know, flies and worms and he baptizing pets and performing wedding ceremonies for you know uh for the for the, for the kids in the backyard he was he, he was born to be a preacher really but he also had ambition he wanted to understand philosophy he wanted to understand theology um he went to morehouse when he was 16 and then went from there to seminary and went from there to uh, a doctorate program at boston university so he had this really incredible set of skills that, that allowed him to think beyond just the Bible, but to think about the connections between the Bible and the nonviolent movements in places like India, um, to think about the, how the Constitution and the Bible could be um, combined in, 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 his, in his sermons as a call to action. 
um, really just uniquely qualified for this moment. And he just happened to be in the right place in the right time. You know, if he hadn't accepted that job in Montgomery, and if he'd taken the job in Chattanooga that he'd been offered, who knows how different history might have been. I talked about your um, familiarity with Dr. King in the context of um, who you are as a journalist. Let me share my own experience with you and get your reflections. One of the things that I most appreciate about Dr. King is the cadence of his speech, uh, the clarity of his words, his wisdom, and his ability to frame concepts and ideas. And unlike many who struggle with that, he seemed to have mastered it through practice and through repetition. Um, how do you think he grew over time after he ascended to the world stage? That's a great question. Um, he did, you know, practice his craft, and um, he then adapted those skills to become the leader of a movement. He was not an organizer. He was not a CEO. When he, when he helped found the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he was a great motivator, but now he had to actually lead an organization and make personnel decisions and budget decisions. And he was not really trained at all for that, but he found that he had this great capacity to improvise, to um, make spot decisions, follow his instincts. What he came to finally realize was that his greatest skill was his ability to shine a light on injustice and that other people could take care of the fundraising and the budget. His job was to make himself seen and heard. And that could be painful at times. You know, he had to, um, he had to fail. You know, he, he started movements in places like St. Augustine and, and Albany, Georgia that failed really. Um, but he learned from those mistakes and applied them when he went someplace like Birmingham where even Birmingham, you know, he failed for a while until he failed and, and until he turned around that failure. Um, so his, his willingness to ri take risk, his willingness to fail, learn from his failure, um, to let himself be the, the catalyst, really, the spark plug was so important. But it's not something he could have learned in business school. I think he had to learn it by experience. And yet at times he did lean upon his uh, uh, doctoral advisor, Harold DeWolf, uh, quite a bit, for example. Uh, uh, you write about when he was in St. Augustine, and he invited his uh, advisor to come down with him. His oldest son, uh, Marty, was with him as well at the age of seven. That was not the most successful venture of his career, but yet would you say by having someone like Harold uh, DeWolf there, that it gave him a kind of stability and certainty about his work and, and what it meant to the nation. I think, you know, we have to remember King is 26 years old when the Montgomery bus boycott. He's a kid and he's suddenly put in this position of responsibility and, and it's chaos. He doesn't know what's happening or what's gonna happen next. So it's very helpful for him to have someone like his old professor there to give him some guidance and some support. And that's another reason why Coretta is so important to him and why Ralph Abernathy is so important to him because he needs to have some people he can trust who will have his back because there's so much going against him, so much risk involved, there's, it's dangerous. There are people trying to kill him. His own government is out to undermine him. So he needs to have 
a support network that he can count on. And, and that's, I think we forget just how important it is to him emotionally. I'm trying to think of what I was doing at the age of 26, and um, certainly nothing close uh, to what Dr. King was doing, for sure. No, I was definitely not draping myself in honor. That you know, I, I, I grew up, Jonathan, as a stutterer. And every now and then, I find myself uh, shrinking back from speaking when I struggle to pronounce words. Uh, I recall even as a child having a tape recorder my mother would have with my brother and I, and she would ask us to speak into the tape recorder, and I would refuse because I didn't want to hear myself speaking. Dr. King didn't have that problem. He loved to hear himself speak. He loved a crowd, but yet he was also not overly infatuated by audiences. He seemed to know he had something to pour into people, and he wanted to do it, but he didn't allow it to uh, cause him to become arrogant, is what I'm saying. No, I think he um, felt probably most content when he was preaching. I think it was, I think of him as being, um, you know, a great musician who knows his gift, knows that it resonates with people, uh, cares deeply about performing to the best of his ability, but really mostly draws the satisfaction from making that human connection. And he always said that more than anything else, he was a preacher. He was, you know, you could call him an activist, you can call him a world leader, um, you can call him a grassroots organizer, but he felt like he was a preacher. And I think his, he, he really wanted to save the soul of the nation. And, and, and that's how he viewed his role. And when he was in the pulpit or, you know, speaking from a lectern is when he felt like he was doing his, his best work. One of the things that you mentioned is uh, in the book, and really it's something I don't think many people appreciate, is the sense of guilt that he carried, uh, the sense of unworthiness to be the leader, um, and perhaps even at times the need to seek some psychiatric uh, attention, if not just full-fledged rest away from the work. Uh, how do you think he managed to deal with so many different types of pressure and at the same time affirm his giftedness and also acknowledge his flawedness? I really don't know how he did it. I think, um, I think his belief in God propped him up. I think he, um, he felt like he was called to this and once called, um, that helped him overcome any doubts, any anxieties any depression. He clearly suffered personally, but there was no turning back because he, he knew so many people were counting on him. He felt like God had called him to this, to this task and that um, he believed so firmly in, in, in God that he had no choice but to devote his life to this, to this work. And it's, it's extraordinary to think about how he overcame it because he, he clearly did suffer emotionally depressed. He was depressed. He drank at times. He sought comfort in, in women um, other than his wife. It was not perfect, um, but um, it's still miraculous. He held up as well as he did. Mm -hmm. You know, I was having a, this same conversation once with my own mother, and she was acknowledging how flawed he was at times, but yet he was the person whom God chose to use. 
And so I think there's hope for all of us in the fact that God uses imperfect people. He uses flawed people, but he uses people who are available and who are willing to take what they've been given and apply it to the good and the well-being of others. Would you say that was his strongest attribute, even beyond his speaking and ability to inspire and motivate others? Yes, I would. I would say it was his faith and his willingness to act on his faith. And, um, you know, if you look at the prophets in the Bible, they were not perfect people. They were people who had failures, who had doubts, who challenged God at times and, and cried out in, in distress, but who nevertheless um, came through their struggles. His relationship with his peers, most uh, notably Ralph Abernathy at times was challenged. Uh, Ralph Abernathy was there through the thick and thin, but at times he felt overlooked. Uh, how did Dr. King help inspire Ralph Abernathy? Ralph Ralph Abernathy, I'm sorry to, as we say in the Black Church, keep on keeping on. I think they loved each other like brothers, and King recognized how hard it was to play second fiddle. Abernathy was a brilliant preacher, an incredibly heroic man. Uh, very courageous and who, but, you know, for the grace of God might've been in, a, in that position of leadership. If King hadn't stepped up that day in Montgomery, perhaps Abernathy would have. Um, but to his great credit, King recognized that his friend was struggling with jealousy and tried his best. You know, he assured Abernathy that, that he should be his successor if anything should happen to him. When King won the Nobel prize, and they gave him a gold Rolex watch. King went out and bought a gold watch for, for Abernathy. Not a Rolex quite, but it was a nice gold watch. And, uh, you know, Abernathy wore that watch every day of his life. And his wife, Coretta. Uh, and we'll talk about Dr. King's relationship with his father also in just a moment. But his wife, Coretta, um, she endured a lot as well. And I'll tell you, uh, her poise and calm under pressure, even after his death, uh, knowing how to talk about him and defend his legacy and not let her children uh, find themselves under the vicious assaults as persons would attack his character. What do you think about uh, Coretta Scott King and what she meant to her husband? She's an extraordinary woman, and she's never gotten her due, and I tried really hard in this book to give her more of the credit that she deserves. It's important to remember that Coretta was more of an activist than, than Martin when they met. Uh, she had been to Antioch. She'd been involved in all kinds of student protests. She'd been to the Progressive Party's National Convention. And I think that's what attracted King when they first met, because you know he dated plenty of smart, attractive women, uh, but she was different in that she had experience in activism. And she was always pushed from the day they met until the day he died to think more aggressively about what he could do. Um, as an activist. So I think um, she deserves a lot of credit as a force behind the civil rights movement, even if she didn't get the attention she deserved, and even if her husband didn't fully respect her capabilities, because she wanted to be more involved. And, and Dr. King said, no, you have to stay home with the kid. That was his own blind spot. He really um, had some problems at recognizing the potential of women as, as leaders. You write at one point in the book where she actually becomes the front person in talking about the war in Vietnam. 
it seems almost that she had as much to do with his decision to come out against the war in Vietnam with her public speaking as anyone else might have. Is that true, or is there more information that has not been shared uh, regarding his decision that led to his uh, famous speech at Riverside Church about Vietnam? I think there's no question that she's pushing him. You know, when he wins the Nobel Peace Prize in 1954, it's credit as we have a responsibility now, we, to speak out on global issues. And she's speaking out on the Vietnam War before he is. And uh, at times when King is nervous that he might cause too much controversy, he suggests sending Coretta in his place. So there's no question that she is a, a guiding light in that regard. Let's talk about his dad. His dad had a very difficult upbringing, um, in the sticks, if you will. And he had some of those, um, some of those experiences that many of us would not want our children to have, and so he seemed to strive to position his children to have advantages in life. Uh, what would you say his relationship was like to his father? Martin Luther King Sr., or Daddy King, as everybody called him, is a fantastically important figure in history. He's born in Stockbridge, Georgia, into sharecropping. His mother and father uh, were born into slavery, and um, Daddy King just walks off the farm at age 14. He sees what sharecropping is doing to his parents, and he decides the only way forward is to get out. So ties his shoes over his shoulder so he doesn't wear them out and walks toward Atlanta and really remakes himself. He teaches himself to read and write, becomes an itinerant preacher, um, talks his way into Morehouse College, and then um, marries his way into Ebenezer Baptist Church. And he's such a force so determined that kids are going to have a better life than him, that it's intimidating at times. He spanks his kids. Uh, he scares the hell out of people. But um, it, I think Martin Luther King Jr. always had this fear of how to deal with his father. He's, he can't really bring himself to stand up to the old man. Um, he respects him. He, he wants to impress him. But um, he, can, he never feels like he can satisfy him. So I think that's a big reason why King strives so hard, why he's so ambitious. He has to please, and maybe he feels like he has to outdo his and one-up his father. It's, an, it's a fascinating relationship. You know, as you mentioned him walking off the farm and tying his shoes over his shoulder, I can't help but have images of Selma in my mind with King walking. Uh, that same sense of fortitude, uh, self-determination, drive, and passion, it did pass from one generation to the next. No question about that. You know, the, the kind of determination that it took for Martin Luther King to, to march and to go to jail 30 times and to face down the entire federal government that is out to destroy him and to keep on going, um, that, that comes from somewhere. It comes from the roots of his, of his father, his grandfather, and his enslaved ancestors before them. Um, that kind of determination, or to make a way out of no way, as Zora Neale Hurston put it, um, that's... That's root, that comes from deep roots. Lyndon Johnson comes to mind. At one point, uh, Lyndon Johnson begins to have less regard for Dr. King because of Herbert Hoover's poison pills uh, put in reports. But prior to that, and even after that, he had respect for the work that Dr. King 
was doing. How much of an influence do you feel Lyndon Johnson had on Dr. King and vice versa? It's a fascinating relationship because Johnson really reaches out to King as soon as he takes office, as soon as Johnson becomes president, reaches out to King and says, you know, I'm going to need your help in passing all this important civil rights legislation. This is going to be a wonderful thing for the black people of America, um, for the poor. He's really prioritizing this. But then the relationship gets poisoned along the way. Um, as Edgar Hoover continues to feed information about King's sex life to the president, the president turns on King. And when King begins speaking out on the Vietnam War, Johnson takes it personally and feels like King is out to get him, feels like King wants to see Bobby Kennedy uh, become president. And the relationship really turns sour. And it, it's a sad thing to see because in, you know, in many ways, it's the greatest relationship between an activist and a president this nation has ever seen but it's soured and really undermined by the Edgar Hoover. Dr. King also spent a great deal of time traveling, and I think you make it extraordinarily clear how much time he spent on the road. Uh, on one occasion, I believe he gave, I don't know what it was, uh, what, nine speeches or 16 speeches, or he stood on a corner. Uh, do you remember that portion of the book? Obviously you do because you wrote the book. Yeah, he, he traveled to Chicago and then to Cleveland, and he was giving, you know, eight to ten speeches a day, moving all around the city, standing on on, uh, on truck beds, uh, speaking to as many people as he could, trying to um, gain support for in, in Chicago for the school protests against segregation, in Cleveland for an election. Um, he was just, he, he felt like he had to be everywhere. He couldn't say no. That was one of King's great flaws. He couldn't say no. That's why he's in Memphis supporting the sanitation workers' strike, because he can't say no feels like he has to be everywhere at once. And also, you know, that's the best way that he can raise money for the cause is to show up. So it takes a tremendous toll. He must have been exhausted um, much of the time by all of this, the demands on him. You don't write much about his children in the book, but you acknowledge them, of course. What do you feel, um, what role did his children have in his life? We see images of him holding his children, playing with his children, but yet we also recognize that he realized he needed to be on the road and could not take them with him. What role do you feel they played in shaping and, in, and, and, it, and at times even offering consolation to him? Yeah, it's, it's sad because he didn't get to spend as much time at home as he would have liked, and so many great world figures sacrificed their personal lives um, but I think, you know, he loved his kids. He was wonderful when he was around them. Uh, but I think mostly they served to inspire him because, you know, he saw one of his kids unable to get into a private school in Atlanta because they wouldn't accept black children. He, his kids would drive past Funtown, this amusement park, and ask why they couldn't get in. So when he talked about his dreams for the future, when he talked about the dreams for a day when, you know, children wouldn't be judged by the color of their skin, he was talking specifically about his own kids. And those kids knew it. Those kids knew that their dad was going to jail for them. And um, you know, it must have put an enormous amount of pressure on the kids. And, um, and I suspect to this day, um, it must cause a lot of stress and anxiety because he suffered so much for them. You um, are Jewish. And so you understand the life and impact that a man like Rabbi Abraham Heschel has had upon the world. Rabbi Heschel was a great colleague of Dr. King. They were close uh, in their thinking on many subjects. 
What do you think the impact would be today if those men were alive to speak to the kinds of conflicts that we see happening in the world today as advocates of justice, peace, harmony, uh, and brotherhood? Well, I mentioned earlier that one of King's great abilities was to listen and to bring people together, not just um, people from various religious groups, but also from different factions of the black movement for equal rights. You know, the, the more radical movements, um, the Malcolm X's and the, and the Stokely Carmichael's, King was, was eager to listen to all of them. And I think we need that kind of listening today. There's so much division today. We're all looking for to argue with one another instead of looking for reasons to try to work together. And King, despite the challenges he faced, always looked for reasons to work together with people, not reasons to, um, to argue or to um, complain about others. So do you feel, uh, Jonathan, that as you reflect upon all that you have learned about the life and times of Dr. King, that the times we are living in now mirror in some ways the times that he lived in? I think there's no question that much of what he was dealing with, we're still dealing with, and the things he warned us about are still in play. He warned us that if we didn't deal with the root causes of racism, that we would continue to be hampered by by racism. He warned us that if we didn't get at the, the at, at the roots of economic inequality, we didn't atone for the sin of slavery, we would continue to be haunted by those things. And that's certainly come true. Um, so I, that's why I think we still need King's words. We still need to remember what he had to say. And we need the real King, not the watered down King. We need the radical King to speak to us today. Mm-hmm. He was a revolutionary. And uh, Cornel West makes that clear in his book, uh, The Revolutionary King or The Radical King. Uh, you point out instances where even uh, Bayard Rustin and some uh, persons like Whitney Young, uh, I believe, were opposed to some of his radical ideas, talking about a national boycott against the state of Alabama in the death of, or in the aftermath of the death of Viola Luzzo. Um, so he was an outstanding figure in many ways. Do you feel that he and Malcolm X were aligning uh, over the course of time. Many have said that, um, but what's your opinion? I think there's no question they were coming closer together um, in the late years. And James Baldwin said he thought they were fairly indistinguishable in their views by the end of their lives. And um, the media had an interest in trying to divide them and, and make them out to be opposites. And I think we do King a disservice, especially I think a lot of young people today think of Malcolm as the as the radical and King as the conservative, and that's really um, not fair to, to, to either of them. They had much more in common than a lot um, apart at that point uh, late in their careers. As we prepare to wrap up here, uh, I want to ask several questions. Um, n- number one, how do you feel uh, we can honor Dr. King's life best? Uh, In just a few weeks from now, we will be celebrating another birthday. We will hear I Have a Dream speeches spoken all over the country. Uh, Quite frankly, Republicans and Democrats alike will quote him and appropriate his words for their purposes. But how do we understand him 
and draw lessons from his life in a way that reflects his struggles and his triumphs and honor his legacy rather than demean his legacy? I think the most important thing we can do is is read his words, uh, not just I have a dream. Read the first half of the I have a dream speech. Read his true words and act on them. Feel like he's speaking to us now the way he spoke to us in the 1950s and 60s when he called us to act. It wasn't just enough to, to say you supported him. It wasn't enough to send a check. It's not enough today just to click the like button on social media. He, it's a call to action. And what he's saying is that we all have a responsibility to work as part with God and with each other in, in creating a better universe. There's a lot of dialogue that is taking place that is under the banner of interfaith or interreligious. I have the privilege of serving in many of these conversations, both in-state and out, with the Miller Center, for example, of Hebrew College. And I do believe that Dr. King would be a force to be reckoned with uh, today when it comes to these comprehensive collective dialogues that reach across the lines of race, religion, and gender, and so forth. Do you feel that interfaith, interreligious conversations would be an area of strength for him? There's no question about it. I mean, he, it was an area of strength for him all his life. He often complained that the ministers who were sitting on the sideline, regardless of their denomination, were the biggest disappointment to him, in some ways more disappointing than the white segregationists of the South. Um, he felt like people of all faith should be united in this, in this work and that God didn't see people based on their color or their nationality. He saw them all as. The final question for you. And as I'm thinking what the final question will be, I'm just going to go with what comes to mind. Uh, we have an election coming up in 2024, approximately 11 months from now. Dr. King did not endorse candidates unless uh, there was some compelling reason to endorse. But one of the things we know his legacy involves is the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And many are saying today they're frustrated with our political system. It's too bitter, it's too caustic, it's too dirty, it's too uh, frustrating, and they would rather sit out. What do you feel, Jonathan Eig, as a biographer, as a journalist, as a historian, as, as a master tactician in the use of language and the artist of words, Dr. King would say to those who have the right now to the ballot, but are thinking of sitting on their bunk bed and not going to the polls. I, I think whenever I'm asked what Dr. King would say, I always fall back on his actual words because he said it for us. He said, get up and get out and march. And if you can't march, then, then crawl. And if you can't crawl, get yourself out there any way you can. He, of course, said it much more eloquently than I can. But the answer is that we have no choice but to get involved. We have no choice but to vote, or else we are doomed to fail, and the failure will be our own responsibility. I want to thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with us. Uh, I know it's been a long day for you, and it's been a busy day for both my colleague Chester, who's sitting here with me, 
And, um, but we are most appreciative. And on behalf of the Social Justice Ministry of Friendship Missionary Baptist Church and our pastor and staff, um, we thank you for your contributions and we look forward to reading further works to come in the imminent future. Thank you so much. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Friendship Talks. Are you listening? And we'll see you again on the next episode.